In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We all enjoy a little mystery. Every other week, one strange thing presents forgotten stories from America's newspaper archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. Join us on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about a man who was literally stricken with genius. A 21st century child who remembered piloting a World War II bomber a mysterious, unidentifiable blob in Texas. And then there was the lizard man stalking through small-town South Carolina. From cryptids and disappearances to modern-day miracles, one strange thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Members of the Nation of Islam may have pulled the trigger, but was there someone else behind the murder of Malcolm X? Whether the Nation of Islam actually pulled the trigger is kind of almost not the point. The point is how were they enabled to be able to pull this off and how were the people who were framed, if they were framed, well they weren't framed by lawyers from the Nation of Islam. So this had to go higher up than that. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here 
Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Author, essayist Kevin Brown is here to discuss the life, legacy, and assassination of Malcolm X. Let me crib here from the Wikipedia entry on Malcolm X. Malcolm Little, better known as Malcolm X, was an African-American Muslim minister and human rights activist who was a popular figure during the civil rights movement. He's best known for his time spent as a vocal spokesman for the Nation of Islam. In the 1960s, Malcolm began to grow disillusioned with the nation, as well as with its leader, Elijah Muhammad. He subsequently embraced Sunni Islam and the civil rights movement after completing the Hajj to Mecca and became known as El Hajj Malik El Shabazz. After a brief period of travel across Africa, he publicly renounced the Nation of Islam and founded the Islamic Muslim Mosque, Inc., and the Pan-African Organization of Afro-American Unity. Throughout 1964, his conflict with the Nation of Islam intensified, and he was repeatedly sent death threats. On February 21, 1965, Malcolm X was assassinated. Three Nation members were charged with the murder and given indeterminate life sentences. Speculation about the assassination and whether it was conceived or aided by leading or additional members of the nation or with law enforcement agencies have persisted for decades after the shooting. Kevin A. Brown is a biographer, essayist, and translator who's authored or contributed to three books, including African American Desk Reference and The Life and Legacy of Malcolm X. Since 1978, many of Brown's essays, articles, and reviews on the visual arts, cinema, dance, literature, music, and politics have appeared in After Image, The American Book Review, American Visions, The Chicago Review, The Kansas City Star, Kirkus Reviews, The Times Literary Supplement, The Nation, New York Newsday, The Oakland Tribune, The Three Penny Review, and The Washington Post Book World, among others. Hey, Kevin. Welcome aboard. How are you? Thank you for having me. Doing very well. February marked the 55th anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. You wrote the book uh, around the 30th anniversary. What precipitated the writing of the book? Yes, you know, I'll tell you, Richard, uh, my experience has been that your career is not what you think it's going to be. Editors propose, or writers, I should say, propose, and editors dispose. So what happened was uh, Malcolm X would have been the least likely subject in the world for me to write about, because uh, I thought he'd been written to death about. Uh, but it happened that uh, 1992, 93, Spike Lee's movie came out. And, you know, what with all the merchandising campaigns surrounding that, a publisher said to me, Kev, why don't you go and figure out what all this merchandising is about and get back to us? So in 1993, I was commissioned to write the book, and it appeared in 1995. And uh, you, you said that you thought everything had been written about uh, Malcolm X. And, of course, you point to sort of the, the, the definitive work uh, about Malcolm's life by Alex Haley. And I think you, you mentioned in the foreword to your book, you read that when you were 15 for the first time. Uh, what, uh, what, was, what were your feelings about Malcolm X prior to reading Alec, Alex Haley's book? I'll tell you, what happened is, in my case, I was born into a family of writers and scholars. It's really that simple. The book was lying around in the basement. But I'll preface that by saying two things. I've, I've written several books, five, four of them published. Richard, I thought they were all about different things. It turns out that they're all about one thing, and that one thing is the transmission of oral history from generation to generation. So long story short, my great-grandmother married into the Harlem Renaissance, she married the poet County Cullen, who had been the son-in-law of W.E.B. Du Bois. So, so much of what I do, I kind of took for granted growing up, and I'm only now realizing how uh, it, it, miraculous it was that that stuff got done. So, literally, I was, you know, fooling around in the basement and saw this book and picked it up and read it and could not put it down. And, and your impressions of, of Malcolm X, the man? You know, he was very multifaceted. First of all, he's a, a great storyteller, yeah? He was a, a rapper. He told great yarns, and, you know, you just he's like a folk hero, and you feel like you're listening to Billy the Kid as he goes from adventure to adventure. You know, you mentioned the when you were asked to write the book, they wanted you to find out what the brand was all about. And, and 
I, I think it is, Malcolm X has come down to a certainly post Spike Lee's movie as a brand, as a, as a fashion statement and so forth. But I, I just wondered if you could spend just a little bit of time, I mean, I mean obviously it's a, it's, a, it's a magnificent story arc here, but just sort of paint the picture of Malcolm X's evolution from, as you point out, gangster, preacher, teacher, finally martyr. Yeah, I'll tell you. So they're kind of, I've been doing a little uh, looking around on the inter- internet, and I see that the threads go kind of like this. There's Malcolm Little, you know, the kid who was born in Omaha, Nebraska, of, you know, one of seven children whose parents really struggled uh, just to keep them alive, to this kid who goes to Boston and becomes a hipster. People will remember that part of the movie, uh, Zoot Suits and all that kind of thing. And then there's uh, Detroit Red, the kind of gangster who was selling reefer in Harlem to Billie Holiday and people like that. And then there's a a sort of iteration, a transformation of Malcolm X that I call Satan, which is when he goes to prison uh, for burglary. And then there's, you know, the sort of prophet, the kind of martyr, I guess you could call him, who was uh, Al Shabazz, you know the Malcolm X that that history knows. So those are kind of all the different iterations that his life has taken. And each one of them is fascinating. They seem any one person could have had one of those lives, but for any one person to have had all of those lives is uncanny. One of the most uh, powerful moments for me in the book was his time spent in prison when he just absolutely devoured uh, books. He, uh, after he was, uh, I guess, transferred to more of a rehabilitation facility, he had access to this wonderful library. Uh, just talk to me a little bit about his transformation in prison leading up to, uh, I guess, kind of a letter writing uh, uh, or a correspondence with, with Elijah Muhammad from the Nation of Islam. Yes, yeah, so the, the 10 chapters in, in the book uh, kind of go through the arc that we've just described. My fir- personal favorite chapter is number four. It's called The Words. Uh, the Words is a reference to a book that was written by Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher and writer of World War II and before, and uh, he wrote a book called Les Mots. So The Words is the chapter where I talk about how Malcolm first freed himself. And this is not as unusual as you might think if you, you know, read prison literature from Dostoevsky to Solzhenitsyn or even Robert Lowell. Many writers will tell you that they never got as much reading and writing done in their entire lives as they did in prison. So I would say that uh, Malcolm would agree that his, his time in prison was probably among the most productive of his short lifetime. He died at the age of 39. Uh, Some people may or may not know the story. You know, he was uh, functionally illiterate, very smart kid, uh, excelled in junior high school, but was discouraged in high school and so dropped out. Uh, But once he got to the prison library, he found he could barely read. And so the way he did it, you know, with the mentorship of other convicts who were programming in a productive way was to sit through the dictionary go through it word by word, page by page, spelling out everything from aardvark to uh, zoomorph or something like that. And that's the story of how Malcolm freed his mind in prison. And what precipitated his correspondence with Elijah Muhammad? So one of his relatives said to him, you know, there is, first of all, Malcolm, you've got to change your ways. You're here for a reason. This is a wake-up call. You have to stop eating pork, they said to him. You know, you have to stop uh, fornicating with women, they said to him. And then there's somebody that I want you to think about. His name is the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. If you write to him, he will respond. Well, Malcolm turned out that he wrote to everybody, including the president. I believe he wrote a letter to uh, was it Harry Truman at the time. You'd have to fact check me on that. Uh, might have been Eisenhower, I'm guessing. Might have been Eisenhower, maybe? I'm not sure. Yeah, 40, 40, late 40s, early ah, 50s. Truman, um, Truman, yeah. There you are. And that letter got him uh, on the FBI's sort of watch list. And he was surveilled. We'll get back to that, I hope, a little later. Uh, he began to be monitored. The FBI file on Malcolm X was initiated when he wrote to Truman. Ah, interesting. And so he, he wrote to Elijah Muhammad. Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad wrote back. And, mm-hmm. and what, what did Elijah say to, to Malcolm? 
you know, he was a sort of savior figure, a father figure that I, I suppose he'd lost when he was himself six years old. Uh, he was a redeemer. Um, he was a flawed man, Elijah Muhammad was. He was human, yes. And so he could never have been what Malcolm X needed him to be. But at that moment, he was the right person at the right time. And, you know, Elijah Muhammad reached out to him in his dungeon and freed him, he thought. Uh, Malcolm really freed himself, but I think he thought that Elijah Muhammad was the savior and liberator. So I, I believe Malcolm uh, traveled to Chicago to hear uh, to or to attend um, a meeting and, and heard Elijah Muhammad speak. And did Elijah Muhammad call him out by name up to the stage? You know, is that what it says in the book? I just kind of skimmed through it myself before we talked. Uh, I don't remember that scene. Please let me know if that's what I said, because if that's what I said, that's what happened. Um, I will say that, you know, the Chicago temple was kind of the hub. It was the temple, I guess, at the time, the Detroit and then other ones that Malcolm was uh, responsible for building up almost from scratch. But I will recommend to your listeners um, something that I've just uh, brushed up on myself, which is the Wikipedia page about Malcolm X. And I find it to be much more um, factual, less full of errors than you'd think it would be. It's not fake news at all. <laughs> but I, I said the takeaway here was how the, the, the meteoric rise of, of Malcolm X, because he had such a passion and fervor for the cause. Uh, and, and it was interesting, you, you write about how Elijah Muhammad cautioned Malcolm X uh, that what he needed was more of a reliable mule and less of a, an unstable racehorse, but Malcolm was the racehorse, wasn't he? He was. He was. I'm, I'm a hockey fan, as you may know, and he wanted Malcolm to skate north and south, right? But Malcolm <laughs> was always zigzagging east and west, and I think that's what got him in trouble as far as Elijah Muhammad was concerned. And um, how would... How would you describe um, Malcolm X's views of race relations in America at that time, uh, as well as, I guess, Elijah Muhammad's? They were, they were sort of simpatico at that point. Right, they were. I think that what the Nation of Islam thought was that African Americans were never going to be equal in American society. Right. So why would they even want to be a part of American society? And in fact, what they should strive to be is a part for, from American society. And remember that this goes back to um, not Malcolm X's childhood hero as much as his father's childhood hero, and that would be Marcus Garvey. Right. So, so there's a sort of persistent strain in American history of uh, we could talk about we could talk about reparations later, but let's talk now about repatriation. Right. There were those who felt from the beginning that you know, this is not our home. We don't belong here, and we're never going to get any respect as long as we stay here. And Africa is where we belong. So, you know, the history of Liberia, as many of your, your listeners will know, and the capital of Monrovia in particular, uh, was founded for our president, James Monroe. This is an old experiment. In some ways, it hasn't changed. So to answer your question, yes, they were very much on the same page in thinking that, um, you know, we're never going to be accepted here. Uh, my idea of, of having lunch at a white counter in the South is coffee with a cracker is the way Malcolm explained it. Right. So, so, you know, what, what is with this integration? Integration is not either possible or desirable. And so why would we strive for that? And of course, many of us are familiar with M Malcolm's uh, perception of uh, perception of whites at that time as uh, the blue eyed devil. Uh, but that, that was tempered uh, significantly um, well, as we'll discuss after he traveled, to, after he did the Hajj to, uh, to Mecca. But even before that, he traveled to Africa in the late 50s. Uh, what, what, did, do you, what did he discover there uh, that, that maybe molded him? Well, you know, I'd like to think two things happened, Richard. Um, as Malcolm freed his mind in prison, all right, paradoxically, Malcolm freed his mind in the outside world or his spirit, let's say, right? By traveling, by seeing that, you know, the bill of goods had been sold in America, right? That, so, so the black separatism is in some ways just an equal and opposite reaction 
of white racism, of, of white apartheid, right? And so, you know, it, it'd, be, it'd be natural for him to demonize the other, right, in the way that the other had demonized him. But I think that when he began to travel, maybe even earlier, the seeds of that were planted when he began to read, because in prison, he was reading German philosophers like Nietzsche. So when he began to travel outside the boundaries of the United States, you know, the veil kind of was lifted from his eyes, right? And that whole white devil stuff, which, you know, is, uh, let's just say it was simplistic to put it charitably, right? He, he just stopped thinking that way because it wasn't plausible, wasn't tenable, wasn't sensible. And um, he he took the, the nation of Islam from a, a kind of a tiny... Uh, tiny burgeoning um, organization, something like 4,000, I think, under Elijah Muhammad, and opened something like 50 mosques uh, in in 50 states and and brought membership up to almost a half a million. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk to me about how that success uh, and the attention that he was garnering, how that really drove the wedge between him Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam? Excellent question. I mean, as you say, he needed Malcolm to be a mule, but Malcolm turned out to be a racehorse. Think of it this way. The Nation of Islam wouldn't be the Nation of Islam had it not been for Malcolm X, right? I mean, objectively, in terms of the numbers that we're talking about, you know, Farrakhan and his stewardship of the Nation of Islam is one thing. But without Malcolm at that time in those places, it just wouldn't have blown up the way it did. Right. So certainly Elijah Muhammad couldn't have done what he did or was, you know, nominally uh, given credit for doing without somebody like Malcolm X. But Malcolm X felt however misguidedly, that he wouldn't be where and who he was had it not been for Elijah Muhammad. Does that make sense? Right, yes. So, so there, therein lies the tension something had to give. Uh, Elijah Muhammad was never going to step down, right? Uh, Malcolm X was never going to take over the business, right? Right, right. So somebody, somebody had to go and it wasn't going to be Elijah Muhammad. Interesting choice of words, the business, because, uh, I mean, they their holdings were extensive. They had their own private jet. I'm, I'm guessing they had uh, fairly substantial real estate holdings and so forth. It was an empire, wasn't it? It, it really was. And, you know, Richard, I think we should, here's the way I believe we should still be thinking about the nation of Islam and black nationalism, particularly as it relates to Black Lives Matter. I kind of hoped that you wouldn't ask me a question about that because I didn't want to be on the hot seat about it. But I think what, what Malcolm and the nation of Islam were trying to say is, look, James Brown said it. He said, I don't want nobody to give me nothing, right? Just open up the door, I'll get it myself, right? Right. That's just quoting James Brown. But I think that what the Nation of Islam was trying to do was to say, well, you know, we don't need or want white charity. What we want is opportunity to go get our own, to form our own businesses. And I think that part of it is as salient today as it was then. More of my conversation with Kevin A. Brown when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be buried in an avalanche? Weird foreign feeling of despair. Or how it feels to crash a skydive? I remember hearing a thud, feeling my body hit the ground. Or how you would react if you were being attacked by an alligator? At the end of my leg is this huge alligator head on my leg. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a victim of an attack. Dragging me into the bathroom and saying, I'm going to kill you, now you're going to die. You'll hear from a man who discovered a baby. How could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Plinky County 911. There's a man at my back door. He's trying to get in. What Was That Like is a podcast about real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at What Was That Like. Overwhelmed by investing? If you're anything like us, the hardest part is getting started. That's why we created the Investing for Beginners podcast. Our goal is to help simplify money so it can work for you. 
We invite guests to demystify investing. At least try to be setting aside like the minimum 10% into the 401k. I'll teach you the basics of the market. Yeah, I think compound interest should be at the start of any discussion about investing. And We've had investment professionals who teach in a simple way. A valuation-driven bear market. You know, we, we haven't really seen yet, and I think everyone's thinking about it, but we haven't really seen yet. Our Q&A episodes feature questions from listeners just like you. So what do you think about the situation with ETBI, which is Activision? I'm Dave Ahern. And I'm Andrew Sather. And we hope you join us on the Investing for Beginners podcast. On the Investing for Beginners podcast. I'm Andrew Gold, a fallen BBC journalist interviewing the heretics and rebels brave enough to speak out against mainstream narratives. Here's Coleman Hughes, John Ronson, and the Trigonometry podcast guys bringing controversy to the fore. How do you feel if a person of a different race moved in next door? I spent a while with a politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan. The system punishes people for wrong think. It's heartbreaking. Here's My Unorthodox Life Netflix star Julia Hart on getting out of a Hasidic Jewish cult. Why can't I be okay with being silent and subservient? Everyone else is. And biologist Richard Dawkins on trans activism. It's perfectly legitimate to say, I'm a man, but I feel feminine. But to then say, therefore I am a woman, is just a betrayal of language. Now it's your turn. Rebel against the mainstream and find a home in this sensible alternative space by subscribing to Heretics Podcast. I can't stop talking about the pomegranate super tea from my friends at Get The Tea. They actually changed the name. It used to be known as Formula 13 pomegranate cleansing tea, but this gentle cleansing tea now contains a new stronger formula. All I know is it still tastes great, it's still refreshing, and it still provides me with energy and a sense of well-being. This new blend of tea contains some of the same ingredients as those that are in the Life Change teas, but with added natural pomegranate flavor and stevia to give it a natural, slightly sweetened taste. One pouch of tea contains eight tea bags, enough to last for one month. I brew two gallons at a time and then it steeps in cold water. Into the fridge it goes and that's enough to last for the week. I start my day every day with a 16 ounce cool refreshing glass of this amazing herbal, non-GMO, caffeine-free tea. It provides a daily gentle cleanse that rids my body of any intruders. A healthy gut is the key to a healthy body. So, come on board and find out for yourself. The Super Tea also comes in peppermint. These teas are not available in any store. Use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. Get your tea from GetTheTea.com. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again and what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Author, essayist Kevin Brown is here and we're discussing the life and legacy and assassination of Malcolm X. Let's talk a little bit about, and this is something that uh, that you, you delve into in your book, and that is the relationship between Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, just talk to me a little bit about, uh, well, I guess their first face-to-face was just about maybe less than a year before Malcolm X was assassinated in 1964, but I guess through the media, they kind of took jabs at each other a little bit because they had very contrasting styles. Talk to me about that. So Malcolm X famously referred or infamously referred to Martin Luther King as Bishop Chicken Wings. Yeah. So, so they, they, there was no love lost between them, you know, in the beginning. I think there probably couldn't have been because in the Nation of Islam's eyes, right, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and Martin Luther King and the integrationists were sellouts. Right? They were trying to do exactly what the Nation of Islam said should never even be done, much less want to be done. Right? So there, there couldn't have been much love lost between them in that way, ideologically speaking. Um, I will say that you know the incident that you refer to when they did meet in 1964 is the one and only time they ever met. And apparently, if you Google it right now, the picture that you will see of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X is the only one ever taken. Ah, it's also reproduced in your book as well. 
Mm-hmm. I should mm-hmm. have one. Yeah. And and when they finally had that that face to face, did they come to an understanding? It seems like they they were they were sort of uh, in some. I think you point this out in the book that that King was becoming maybe more militant than he had been, and and Malcolm X was becoming uh, far more conciliatory. Yeah, and they were both becoming more dangerous. Let me just get a little bit ahead of myself, Richard, and say before we get on to the conspiracy theory thing about this is that it is uncanny. I mean, it is beyond coincidence that four leaders of the stripe of uh, John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and um, Malcolm X, not to mention so many other leaders who were assassinated in that time of regime change, let's put it that way. It it strikes me as beyond belief, coincidental, that within the space of five years, 1963 to 1968, four leaders of that caliber in the United States alone could have been assassinated by lone, you know, madmen. Right, right. Um, Yeah, go ahead. uh, We were talking about their sort of coming together, maybe converging... So they were both becoming more dangerous, not less, I believe, right? And, and, and certainly Malcolm, to the extent that he was seen as a less polarizing figure among a fringe group of fanatics, you know, like black separatists, to the point, to the point where he's becoming international, to the point where he was beginning to address the UN, then he became really dangerous, and the result is the result. But to answer your question, I think that, yes, they did kind of come more to the middle from being on opposite polar opposites to this extent. My theory is that Malcolm X is actually the less radical of the two figures and Martin Luther King, the more, right? You would think it would be the opposite, but I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is that for all of his rhetoric, right? Martin Luther King wasn't getting the kind of structural things done that, you know, scared some people in very high places. You know, he wasn't organizing bus strikes, right? He wasn't uh, going to call the, what was it, the the union uh, in Memphis of garbage collectors uh, the day that, Mal- that Martin Luther King was assassinated. You know, Malcolm really wasn't doing things like that. Now, to the extent that they were forming a multi-billion dollar empire within the United States, probably far less of a threat to, you know, Hoover's FBI and other powers that be than what Martin seemed on a trajectory to be doing. Right. And just a a quick aside, but an important one, referring to Dr. King's assassination and becoming more dangerous. And I, I, you know, I I think had he just continued uh, um, advocating on behalf of, you know, garbage workers, etc., and talked less about Vietnam, he might still be alive today. There we are. One thing I'd like to mention, if we can just segue to it a little bit here, is that there was an organization, again, forget about the conspiracy theory about who killed Malcolm Martin, Robert F. K. or JFK. Forget about that. Let's just point to the fact that we know there was a program called the Counterintelligence Program. Now, your readers will be very familiar with this program. Uh, It's called COINTELPRO for short. My understanding is it was founded by the FBI in the mid-50s and went on to about 1970. So all I'm trying to just suggest to readers is that they think about this. You take a whole bunch of different civil rights groups who are not very well coordinated in the first place, right? And then you begin to play divide and conquer with them and then watch what happens yes 100 percent um let's i think we need to talk about malcolm's uh hodge his trip to mecca and how that really uh transformed him into who he who he was you know until the end what um well first of all for those not familiar with uh the requirement of the hodge talk to me about that Right. So if you have the means, my understanding is it's kind of the sacred duty of every Muslim to visit Mecca at least once in their lifetime. It's a big deal. People save for it all their lives. Not, not all are able to do it, and it's not uh, a strike against you if you can't. Uh, Malcolm got the opportunity to do this, and as you can imagine, for him, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, uh, maybe for reasons other than he thought it would be. But I, I guess what I'm saying here is that his eyes were were open, the veil was kind of lifted. And once he began to see that, just as today, 
our Black Lives Matter problem may not be an us and them problem. It may not even be a black and white problem. It may really be a problem of increasing numbers of people who feel themselves disenfranchised from a system that simply does not work for them. So we can go back to that or not. I didn't come on your show to rant and rave about Black Lives Matter. What What I did come on to do is to try to draw some parallels between, you know, why Malcolm X suddenly became resurgently popular in 1995, 30 years after his assassination, and why, you know, so, you know, to this day, does he continue to be popular? And so I would say that, you know, at Mecca, during the, the Hajj, he began to see that this is not a black-white thing. It's much, much bigger than that. And, you know, in, in, in the spirit world, there probably is no black and white. But it, it certainly seems to behoove certain earthly powers to perpetuate that illusion. Would, would it be fair to say, uh, and, and, you, and I, I believe you point this out, that, that, that Dr. King saw his mission to elevate humanity, whereas mm-hmm. at the time uh, Malcolm X thought, I'm, I'm here to elevate uh, black, the, you know, the black people. Uh, would it be fair to say that, that after, his tr- after his trip to Mecca, after the Hajj, that Malcolm X came around to the same line of thinking as Dr. King? I think to get back to your earlier point, did they converge? Did they kind of meet more in the middle before the death of Malcolm in 1965? And the answer is unequivocally yes. And, and he became more of a threat at that time, too. So when, when did the final uh, schism between Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam uh, come about? So I, th- I believe it was in the early 60s, 62. I can actually look this up quickly in uh, my Google. I believe it was, you know, 59, 60, that time he began to draw further and further away. By 1964, I believe he had been, not excommunicated, he had left the Nation of Islam and converted to the Sunni uh, branch of Islam, uh, which is what he considered to be the true faith. And uh, and then he he started his own organization. I believe it was initially called Muslim Mosque Inc. or something to that. That's effect. correct. And he he opened up um, in uh, in Washington Heights, New York. I guess it was the um, the Audubon Ball organization. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So there was another umbrella organization called uh, it, it, the acronym of it escapes me, but yeah, the the Audubon Ballroom became a sort of headquarters for him once he'd left the Nation of Islam, and that was of course where he was assassinated. Right, right, and and um, interesting that you know at the, at this point he's he's speaking before um, they're not all uh, Muslims, they're not even all blacks at this point. I mean his. The, the people, the people that he was opening up to and that wanted to come hear him speak, was just expanding. It was quite a a, a panoply of of uh, of, uh, of society. Yeah, and let me try to hold this thread together, Richard, here, but another thing happened, which is a big scene in the movie. It was called the Hinton Affair. Uh, there was a, uh, an event or an incident in New York City where a Muslim brother was beaten by the police and arrested and not given medical attention until Malcolm went to the precinct and intervened on his behalf. So the gathering got to be so large, thousands of people, that it really got the attention of the New York City Police Department. You know, the FBI had been watching him all along before that. But the NYPD definitely had him on their radar at that point, because there's a famous quote that says, no one man should have that much power. Mm. Indeed. Um, his house uh, in Queens, I guess, was uh, was firebombed. And the timing there is interesting, because I believe it happened just shortly after a con- telephone conversation with him, I think, and Dr. King and course his phones were being tapped by the fbi any connection there mm-hmm. for sure again that's part of how it just strikes me as in uh, it, it, not credible that this could all be coincidence so the firebombing of uh, malcolm x's house took place on february 15th uh, people want to fact check me on that and his assassination as we know took place on february 
21st, exactly, what, a week later. And so it's, it's hard to believe that these things are accidental or some sort of conflux of random events. Um, clearly, somebody wanted Malcolm X gone. Now, was that person Elijah Muhammad? Maybe. Was that person, uh, you know, Louis Farrakhan? Maybe. Could either of those people done it by themselves and had it be covered up to the extent that it has for how many years now? Not likely. Right, right. Um, which takes us to the Audubon Ballroom. Uh, was it February twentieth? Twenty first. Twenty first. Twenty first. Twenty first. Nineteen sixty five. And. Mm-hmm. Um, it was unusual because uh, his his bodyguards, or at least the doors, were not manned by armed guards. My understanding is right. That's my understanding. But again, getting back to the police incident, the police precinct incident, my understanding is that there were, in fact, um, police officers, whether uniformed or not, in the audience that day. Right. Right. So, so I, it'd be hard for me to believe that there weren't, you know, the FBI had infiltrated the Nation of Islam to the point that one of the higher ups uh, was, in fact, either an informant or actually an agent of the FBI. So my point is that it's inconceivable to me that there wasn't some presence from one of the agencies in the audience to undercover, maybe observing, maybe not. So we know that there were FBI uh we suspect there were FBI agents in the audience. We know for a fact that there were uh, uniformed or not uh, police officers from the NYPD in the office today he was shot. And what we do know is that the FBI, when the m- murder happened, backed off. They said, well, it's an internal matter. It's a matter for the NYPD. Right, right. And so just walk us through the, the final moments of Malcolm's uh, life as he's speaking to those assembled at the Audubon Ballroom. What happens? So, you know, he, he comes at about two in the afternoon, I recall. He gets set up. He gets up to speak. Somebody makes a commotion. It looks as though something was staged, right? A distraction. Somebody says, get your hand out of my pocket or something like that. And then there was a sort of melee that ensued. Somebody walks right up to the stage with a sawed-off shotgun and fires into his chest. They were 21 bullet wounds that were recovered or found in Malcolm's body the day he was assassinated. And then two other people ran up and shot at him with uh, semi-automatic weapons. That's my understanding of what happened. Right. And uh, the person that was apprehended by the crowd, I guess, uh, after the assassination, uh, Thomas Hagen, a former member of the Nation of Islam, was he a fruit of Islam? One of the one of the I I believe he was that we should also kind of mention the fruit of Islam, which was kind of the paramilitary wing, right, Richard, would you say, of the Nation of Islam? The reason I mention it is because, you know, we're kind of witnessing the rise of paramilitary wings of different you know, factions. It doesn't matter whether they're far right or far left. We're kind of witnessing a resurgence of this as well, and that can't be unconnected or disconnected from a resurgence of interest in Malcolm X. So yes, to answer your question, my understanding is that Hagen was a, what they call, fruit of Islam soldier. The other two individuals that were charged, Hagen claims that they were framed, which again kind of alludes to uh, a conspiracy and and perhaps even the fact that he was a fall guy. What are your thoughts? So so I'm thinking, you know, whether again, so whether the Nation of Islam actually pulled up, whether they pulled the trigger is kind of almost not the point. The point is how were they enabled to be able to pull this off and how were the people who were framed, if they were framed, well, they weren't framed by lawyers from the Nation of Islam. So this had to go higher up than that. And my, my point is that I, I don't think that three people acting in unison uh, could have pulled this off and gotten away with it. Well, they didn't get away with it. Um, but a conspiracy is only a conspiracy because it's not solved. And unsolved conspiracies are, by nature, I guess, well thought out. Right. right? Right. And as you point out in the book, uh, the Nation of Islam certainly could have pulled the trigger, uh, but they would have needed considerable help in order to keep uh, a lid on the uh, on the truth all, all these years. 
I just don't think they were capable of that kind of concerted action. I'll go further. I'll say that um, Louis Farrakhan, there have been several documentaries that I wish I could you know, direct your readers to in recent years. One is as recently as 2019 or 2020 about the assassination of Malcolm X. And I, I guess what I'm saying is Louis Farrakhan said, what I said about Malcolm, in other words, bring me his head on a platter, what I said about Malcolm may have contributed you know, unwittingly on my part to his assassination, but I didn't kill him. So, so Louis Farrakhan is on the record as saying that what I'm asking is, so, you know, director Hoover might've said something like, well, I didn't kill Malcolm X. Right. But are you trying to tell me that a program like COINTEL uh, didn't contribute or facilitate, right. Uh, the murder of somebody like Malcolm X and God knows how many other people. Right. In fact, I think um, uh, Louis Farrakhan said those or admitted as much on, a, I think it was around a 2000, the year 2000 on 60 Minutes, uh, admitted that right. he may have said something, which uh, may sound, you know, like a, a candid admission, but maybe maybe part of that is he's running cover for someone higher up, basically taking the taking the blame in a, in a, in a is he is he alluding to you know as you say powers higher on the chain than he you know having a role in this i, I just don't think louis farrakhan did it himself i don't think three people with sawed off shotguns and automatic pistols pulled this off one winter day in february by themselves what do you think malcolm x would make of uh and i don't want to dwell on this uh, on this too much but just in general what do you think malcolm x would think of what is happening uh today in america so are you alluding to the black lives matter or are you alluding to just the, the oh, social, just unrest the unrest in general yeah in general I, I think what he would have said in his pre-enlightenment days please let me be very careful about this he would have said something reckless like the chickens have come home to roost. What I would like to say is that he evolved beyond that and would be thinking much bigger picture than that, right? So I, I don't think that somebody who feels that they have nothing to lose, right, burning down a store that your immigrant family from the Ukraine slaved to build, I don't think that anybody believes that that, does anybody justice? I don't believe anybody believes that that solves the problem. What I do believe is that there are people in increasing numbers who feel that disenfranchised from the system that they constitute a real danger. I think people are afraid. And I, I would tell you that, you know, the FBI wasn't just watching um, the Black Panthers. They weren't just watching people like that. They were watching the neo-Nazi party, right? Right, right. And, and what, whether that's justice or not, what I'm saying is that goes or speaks to the depth of the fear of containment of these forces that don't fundamentally seem to want the same things we want. Does that, does that maybe speak to your question? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, we, 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 we began the discussion talking about the impetus for the, the book being written and, and uh, I guess the publisher kind of referring to the, find out what this Malcolm X brand is all about. And he, he has become, as I say, kind of a brand, uh, which, you know, is, is, is unfortunate because obviously there's so much more to this, this remarkable historical figure. Do you think that 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 legacy, and that's the title of the book, Malcolm X, His Life and Legacy, will that legacy be sort of reclaimed? And will do you, are you hopeful that this generation will begin to understand Malcolm X then more than a T-shirt or a baseball cap? Well, let me, let me try to answer that question this way, Richard. Um, I, I, just as I don't believe that people will have successfully hijacked the name of... Uh, Floyd George, right? I, I don't think that can go on forever. I think there are people who are trying to do that, but I think what he represents goes much deeper than that. And so I'll say in the same way that you can merchandise uh, Malcolm X all you want to, but you can't, you know, you can't brand away what he stood for and you don't sort of paper over the problems that way. Does that, does that help? A hundred percent. 
Um, I, w- I would finish that if I could by saying that, you know, defacing history and, and my way of looking at things as a writer is not the same as facing history, number one. And, and number two, if you begin by toppling statues of people who, who banned your history, right, meaning Confederate whites from the South, well, where does that stop? Do you begin to burn their books? And once their books become fair game, then where does that stop? Kevin, uh, a real pleasure. Let me uh, point out that Malcolm X, his life and legacy, uh, which was written 25 years ago, no longer in print. However, uh, they can get it through your website, and I've included a link to your website in the episode notes for this podcast. Thank you very much. Kevin, And, and all the public... All the public libraries seem to carry it, so it is, it is widely available. Right, and there's also a, a free uh, a PDF available as well that I'll include the link to. But I would encourage you to go Thank to the you. website and uh, procure it through there. Kevin, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a moment to share a few details about an upcoming episode. One tablespoon of ESS-60 from C60 Evo helps keep me pain-free, energized, and mentally focused. And I'm sleeping so much better since I started taking ESS-60 back in November. ESS-60 is the consumable form of C60, the miracle molecule discovered by Nobel Prize winning chemists in the 1990s. ESS-60 is a mega antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. Check out the Paris study, a peer-reviewed scientific study online, where ESS-60 suspended in olive oil was fed to rats. The rats fed ESS-60 lived almost twice their normal lifespan. I can't sit here and tell you I'm going to live to be 112, but I'm 56 and I haven't felt this youthful, energized, and pain-free since I was in my 20s. ESS60 from C60 Evo. If you want to discover the benefits of this amazing miracle molecule for yourself, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link for c60evo.com. And don't forget to use the code RS1SPEC when ordering and you'll receive an additional 5% off. ESS60, the miracle molecule from C60 Evo. It's changed my life discover what it can do for you. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to cure, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time, Evolution Myths, a critical examination of neo-Darwinism with Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.